Open up your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is on page 482, if you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table. We're going to look at this psalm tonight as a continuation of our uh, series called Psalms of Joy. But if you're familiar with Psalm 22, you know that this is a psalm of lament, okay? And maybe you've heard that word, maybe you don't, you just kind of sort of know what it means. But a, a lament is an audible cry of sorrow and grief. It's an audible cry of sorrow and grief. And in this case, it's set to music, okay? This song's in a minor key, right? Um, and so to include a psalm of lament in a series called Psalms of Joy kind of seems like an oxymoron, right? Like, like it's right up there with referring to the horrible crucifixion of the world's only perfectly innocent man as Good Friday, right? Jesus quoted the opening line of Psalm 22 while he hung on the cross, and, and that's one of the reasons that we're going to look at it this, uh, this psalm tonight. But uh, even though it was written hundreds of years before Jesus, we'll see that many of these things described here were actually uh, experienced by Christ while he was being crucified. But we need to understand this, okay? Psalm 22 is not written as prophecy. It's written as a poem that aided any worshiper who sang it in expressing deep-rooted pain and sorrow that came from a sense of feeling abandoned by God in the midst of great suffering. It was written by King David, but nothing recorded in Scripture of David's life perfectly matches what this psalm describes. We can't go find all of these events written in, in other places in Scripture that talk about David. I think that ambiguity maybe seems to be by design, since it was written for use in public worship, anyone who feared the Lord could sing it and find it relatable then to his or her own situation. This serves as a model prayer or a, or a song to help worshipers cry out for God to make his presence known to them in the midst of their anguish and their pain. This psalm is a lament of the innocent sufferer. This is what happens here, right? And we know that Jesus is the ultimate innocent sufferer. This is why we're here tonight. And that means that the words of, the, of lament in Psalm 22, they found their ultimate expression, not out of David's mouth, but out of Christ's, while he hung on the cross. Yes, Jesus was fulfilling things that this psalm speaketh, speaks of, but he wasn't just fulfilling these things. He was genuinely praying this prayer. He was genuinely and truly lamenting. So have you ever prayed to God for help but felt like God wasn't listening to you? Have you, uh, uh, then the words of this psalm will remind you that not only does King David know how you feel, but Jesus Christ, God himself, does too. The crucifixion is proof that God not only hears our cries of anguish and answers us, but he knows our pain even better than we do. And that is a comforting and helpful thought. So I want to read this psalm in its entirety. I want to pray, and then we'll jump in. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted 
and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look at me and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life, from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him, for he's not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him forever. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. And those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that now that your spirit who dwells in us would enlighten our hearts to see as those who, at the time of this psalm, we were not yet born. And yet we stand here and sit here and hear of the things that you've done. Would you take us to the cross of Jesus to hear his lament, to find comfort in it? Would you lead us to praise for our King who saves? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever apologized for crying in front of someone? Let me see if this scenario hits home for you. Maybe you're sharing a story of something that you experienced that's brought you a lot of pain and, and distress, sorrow. And as you start to replay it out loud, like that, the, all of that hurt, all of those thoughts, all of the, the wounds, they start to resurface. And your voice begins to quiver. Your vision blurs as the tears well up in your eyes. And then just before you lose all your faculties, you look down 
and you forcefully clear your throat and you quickly wipe away your eyes trying to erase any evidence that you were just about to ugly cry, right? And then those words come out of your mouth as a concession that you've shamefully somehow inconvenienced the, the, the person that you're talking to. I'm sorry. You ever been there? We live in a culture that preaches the inner strength of the individual, that you have to be strong for yourself, that the only one that you can truly rely on is you. But when you buy into that mentality, then you forfeit the freedom to show any kind of weakness because it's an admission that you can't take care of yourself or that you're unable to move beyond something that has brought you tremendous grief. You have guilt for feeling bad. And as a result, we short-circuit the healing that lament brings. We either try to suppress our grief or altogether, or we, we try to sprint our way through it, plod and dig. And as Christians, we mistakenly believe that lament is an obstacle to our joy rather than an avenue to it. Now, one of the essential truths of the gospel that we herald as believers is the complete forgiveness of our sins that Christ purchased for us through his death on the cross, right? And the forgiveness that we now know should bring us great joy. This is what we sing about. This is what we proclaim to each other about. The gospel is good news, right? But we can't separate our sorrow, our, our joy from the sorrow and the suffering of our Savior, who willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And while Jesus hung on the cross, he lamented. He lamented the sorrow and the suffering that he felt. The cross led to the grave, but as we'll celebrate on Sunday, we're not going to wait till Sunday. We'll get there tonight. But we know the grave led to the glory of the resurrection. Our Savior's grief led to his glory and paved the way for our pain to lead to praise. You see, in Jesus, we have a sympathetic Savior. And because he is our sympathetic Savior, we should unashamedly express our lament to him and use it to lead us to joy in him. Because Christ feels our pain and answers our prayers, he's given us both an avenue and an answer for our lament. And so we should lament with great comfort because Christ sympathizes, and we should lament with great confidence because Christ saves. Now, we have had a lot to lament about over the last year, have we not? And I can't promise you that by the time we get through this psalm tonight, we're all going to be experts at this. My hope is that by the time we're done, we're convinced that we need it in our lives and that it's okay. It's not even just okay, it's necessary as believers. But we need to see how Jesus sympathizes with us in the pain of unanswered prayer. So let's go back, look at verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. Psalms of lament typically begin with an address to God. That should tell us something right there. 
not just to someone else. It's to God himself. And they petition him to be heard. David opens the psalm this way, and there's a few important things that we need to note here. Three times, three times in these first two verses, David addresses God as my God. My God. There's a relationship there, right? There's an intimate knowledge and understanding between the two of them. David knows God not as some far-off deity, but as the God who is near to his people, the God who anointed him as king over Israel and established his throne. And that understanding elevates the sense then of the angst in his questions. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Verse 2, David says that he cries out to God all day and all night. He says, I have no rest. The idea there is that he's, he's never quiet. He's not silent. He never stops crying out. Why? He continues to cry out because God continues to remain silent. Why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far? You do not answer. This is how David starts out the psalm. You ever cried out words like these? You ever been dismayed by God's silence? Wondering why he gives you no answer or relief? See, it's not like God to not answer his people. And this is what David appeals to in the next part of the psalm. Look at verse 3. But you're holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and they were not disgraced. Every psalm of lament includes a reason for why God should answer the psalmist's petitions. David's reason is that God has always intervened on his people's behalf. This is who you are. This is what you do. God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he made them his people for the sake of his own glory, so that Israel then would make his name known to the nations, and that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would worship him. Israel's praise was acknowledgement of God's enthronement, not just over the nation of Israel itself, but over the whole world over the nations. And David appeals to God's trustworthiness three times again. Whenever you see something in the Bible three times, the writer is telling you, this is the fact. This is the reality. This is important. And three times, he notes how his ancestors trusted God and God not only rescued them and set them free, but he also kept them from shame. But David feels shame. He describes his trouble to God in the next few verses. Look at 6, verse 6. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. People around David have dehumanized him. They've humiliated him with their words, with their behavior, with their looks, he feels like a worm, like the lowest of the low, in the dirt. And while he continues to be scorned and despised and mocked by others, God continues to remain silent. David just keeps crying out. He doesn't understand why he continues to be disgraced while his ancestors were rescued from it. God, they trusted in you. You didn't let them down. 
You didn't leave them disgraced. Why won't you answer me? Listen to verse 9. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. This is David's argument here. God, I am one of your people. I am. And you haven't been, and you have been faithful to me since the day I was born. I trust you. I depend on you. Why won't you answer me like you've answered Israel in the past? Why won't you rescue me like you've rescued your people? You ever feel like you drew the short straw in this situation? Like God's paying attention to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but not you? You ever have a hard time rejoicing with those who rejoice when you just want them to weep with you? Even though you've faithfully been following him just like they have, he still remains silent. You ever wonder why God seems to answer their prayers but not yours? David continues to describe this anguish that he feels as he pleads with God. Look at verse 11. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They've divided my garments among themselves and they've cast lots for my clothing. For David, suffering and pain feel closer than God does. Don't be far from me, he says, because distress is near. Distress is near. And there's no one to help. Everywhere David looks, what does he see? He sees enemies, right? He describes them as bulls and lions and dogs. Bashan was a fertile area northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It was known for producing the finest uh, and strongest animals. The bulls of Bashan were especially noted for their power and size. David uses this metaphor to describe this overwhelming strength that he's up against. Well, his is failing. They're surrounding him like these strong bulls ready to crush him with their horns. He calls them lions in verse 13, mauling him and, and, and with their powerful claws, devouring him with their huge teeth and terrifying him with their ferocious roars. Now, I don't know how many of you have a dog as a pet in here, but they didn't have dogs as pets back then. They hated dogs. They weren't household staples. They were despised by people. They were wild scavengers that would eat the flesh of the dead and lick their blood. They were despised by people. 
David's words here describe the despicable and relentless evil that he faces from his enemies. In sharp parallel to God's continual silence and absence is their continual onslaught and attack and oppression. As often as God is silent, they continue in their onslaught. David's anguish is not only emotional, it's not only social, but it's physical too. He's speaking metaphorically here, right? But it's, it's clear that this anguish is taking a very real toll on his body. You, you understand this, don't you? When, you? when you get in a deep, dark place, it does something to you physically. His strength is drained away as he's poured out like water. He's, he's losing heart as his courage melts like wax. His body's fragile like a dried up shard from a clay pot. He's parched and emaciated, and he's wasting away. They pierced his hands and feet. Now, we read that, and we immediately think of Jesus being nailed to the cross, and we'll get there. But we need to see this in the context of how David is experiencing it first, because David is the one that wrote this psalm. And in verse 16, he says that dogs have surrounded him, and a gang of evildoers has closed in on him. The piercing here is not nails uh, through hands and feet, it, it's, it's a picture of the puncture wounds that he would experience from the claws and the teeth of the dogs. Either way, it's gruesome. In the middle of describing all this, David addresses God in verse 15. He says, you, you put me, you put me in the dust of death. In essence, God's silence means the end of David's life at the hands of his enemies. God, if you don't open your mouth, if you don't do anything, say anything, you sign my death sentence. Once again, appealing to his relationship with God, David makes one final plea in this next section. Look at verse 19. But you, Lord Don't be far away. This is how he started out the prayer. Verse 11, it's coming back to it. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, he repeats the plea from verse 11. Don't be far. Don't be far. He calls God by his covenant name. He says, Lord, you look in your Bible, that word is in all caps. That's the name of God he's using there. It's Yahweh. It's the name that God revealed to his covenant people, Israel, through Moses when he promised to be with them and be their God, when he promised to come to their rescue, when he already came to their rescue, when he already brought them out of Egypt and showed himself to be faithful. He said, this is who I am. David calls God my strength, once again appealing to the covenant relationship that David himself has with God as the king of Israel. David rules in power over Israel because God has given him the strength to do so, because he rules the right hand of the Lord. He trusts God. He knows God's power to save, so he pleads with God, Help me, rescue my life, save me from my enemies. And he names them again in reverse order, the dogs and the lions and the bulls. 
the oxen. Don't put me in the dust of death. Save me from it. This is his cry. Now these first 19 verses. Do you know these? Have you ever prayed this way? Maybe it feels uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe it feels almost sinful to talk to God like this, like it's almost accusatory. Like, what are you doing? Who are we to, to talk to God like that, right? But I'm willing to bet there's no one in here that doesn't understand the feeling and the pain of unanswered prayer and long to cry out to God in this way, to be honest with how you feel. Have you ever felt questions like these building up in your heart? Lord, aren't I yours? Haven't I trusted you? Aren't you faithful to your people? Isn't that what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we have confidence and hope in him? Why won't you answer me? You ever felt like God has put you in the dust of death and allowed your enemies to scratch and claw and bite and devour you? Then let David's words be your words. Lament is not something that we know how to do very well. I think the world's gotten really good at shouting. And maybe we join them in that. But that's not what lament is. Not that way. It's not vitriol. It's not slander. It's sorrow. It's pain. We need to see that God has given us lament as a gift so that we can express our deepest grief and sorrow to him even when we feel like he's not listening. Even when it seems like he's silent in reply. And we can do that because the cross proves that he is listening, right? And not only is he listening, but he knows. He knows the pain that we feel because he endured it himself. We heard from David. Now we need to hear from our Savior who sympathizes with us. He's our sympathetic Savior. He's the sufferer of sufferers. He's the lamenter of lamenters. The deepest lament that this psalm conveys is most fully understood at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because everything that David describes here figuratively, actually, and literally happened to Jesus. Matthew 27, 39 through 44. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him and they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals, even the criminals, the worms, the ones who deserved what they got, even they taunted him. Mark 15, 24. Then they crucified him. They divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each one would get. You see, Jesus endured 
the agony of the cross alone. They pierced his hands and feet, not with teeth and claws, but with nails. And people stared at him as he hung there, parched with thirst and slowly suffocating under his own weight. His strength dried up like baked clay as he suffered the full weight of God's righteous wrath against the sins of his people. And he'd been whipped and beaten beyond recognition, and he hung there in humiliation with a crown of thorns pressed into his head as people mockingly worshipped him as king of the Jews. And in the moment of his deepest anguish and pain, the Son of God cried out in lament, in lament to the Father, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Only to receive silence as the Father's reply. And that silence was condemning. But not because Jesus was guilty. Because we were. And in that moment, that Jesus felt abandonment so that we could be brought near. Jesus was left with no one to help him so that he could help everyone who comes to him for rescue. You see, he was disgraced so that anyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. He was put to the dust of death so that we could be given eternal life. He was pierced for our transgressions he was, uh, for, so that we could be forgiven and cleansed of our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was punished so that we could have peace. He was wounded so that we could be healed. You see, Jesus wasn't just hanging there on the cross and going, I think Psalm 22 is fitting here. I'll just shout that line. Show him what I'm going to do. Yes, he fulfilled the things that David spoke of. But he was using it in that moment. Fully God, fully human, experiencing the pain and the agony of the cross. He was using Psalm 22 to lament his own very real and very deep anguish. He was lamenting in the truest fashion. He was expressing the agony of his suffering, suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf. In his lament, Jesus understood the pain of unanswered prayer. But in his pain, Jesus himself answered our prayer for help. And this ought to bring us not only tremendous comfort because we have a God who sympathizes with us, but tremendous confidence because we have a God who saves us. Jesus lamented the pain of unanswered prayer so that he could receive the praise for answering our lament. Look at verse 21. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him, for he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but he listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. Without any kind of transition. The mood of this psalm radically changes right here. 
You know why? Because his prayer was answered. God answered David's prayer. He once again has proven himself trustworthy and faithful to deliver his people. He's once again shown that he does not despise or abhor the torment of the oppressed, but he looks on them with sympathy and love and comes to their aid. He does not hide his face from his people when they cry to him for help. God does not hide his face from you, Christian, when you cry to him for help. Don't mistake his silence for forsaking you. Like David's ancestors before him, he cried to the Lord and he was set free. He trusted in God and he was not disgraced. Now he calls on all of Israel's descendants to join him in their, in, and their ancestors in, in enthroning God once again upon their praises so that the nations themselves will see the God who saves and they will glorify him too. Look at these last verses here, 26. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. The picture here is, is a future fulfillment of, of God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis to bless the nations through him. You see, God's salvation isn't just for people of Israel who cry out to him. Praise God for that, right? But for people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation who cry out to him in response to what he's done. That means people in Minunk, Illinois. Roanoke, and El Paso, and Gridley, and Benson, Toluca, and Winona, and Rutland, and Dana, and on and on and on. From the humble to the poor, and the poor to the rich and the prosperous, people from all the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord, and they'll praise him for his redemptive work. He won't just be enthroned upon the praises of Israel. He'll be enthroned upon the praises of every nation because he rules the nations. And kingship belongs to the Lord. And his praises won't just spread geographically. They'll spread generationally as well. Descendants will hear of God's faithfulness from their ancestors who trusted him. Just think about where we're at. We're 2,000 years separated from this. How did it get to us? Jesus was hundreds of years separated from that. Parents, this is for you. Your kids need to know that God is a God who answers and who saves. Descendants will hear of God's faithfulness from their ancestors who trusted in him. They'll be told about the Lord and they themselves then will see 
will believe and will declare his righteousness, his saving deeds. I love how the psalm ends in verse 31. To a people yet to be born, they will declare what he has done. In the Hebrew, those final words of that psalm say this, for it is done. Does that sound familiar to you? Jesus ends the cross the way David ends the psalm. It is finished. And all that packed in between, my God, my God, and it is finished, all that we just read, Jesus brought to fulfillment. But he did it while he lamented the pain that he had to endure. You see, with those words, it is finished. Jesus gave up his spirit and he secured our salvation. He was buried in a tomb and the disciples, they felt for three days the silence of God as they cried out like, what? hold on, what happened? We trusted you, we followed you, we, we gave our livelihoods away. Why have you forsaken us? And they wondered why their Messiah was dead, but on the third day, the third day, the son rose. The father brought him out of the grave to show his people that he's a God who hears and answers. He would not abandon his son. He would not abandon his people. He would abandon the grave. And for 2,000 plus years, from generation to generation, all over the world, People have been told of God's saving deeds, and by his grace, they've cried out to him when they hear the good news of the gospel. They cry out to him for rescue through faith in the finished work, in the it is finished work of Jesus. And he joyfully answered their cries with forgiveness and redemption brought throughout, brought through the agony of the cross and the joy of the resurrection. You see, we know joy we know this joy because we came to a place of lament when we understood that we were sinners condemned by a holy God. And we lamented over what our sin did to Jesus. We cried out in sorrow because of our rebellion against God and, and, and that, that rebellion brought condemnation upon his perfectly innocent son who willingly and obediently took upon himself the punishment for our disobedience. Jesus went into that pain and that sorrow willingly. We agonized over the helplessness of being unable to reconcile ourselves to God, and we cried out then to Jesus because we knew he was our only rescue. We ugly cried our way to the cross. We found the Savior who would not despise or reject us, who would not turn us away, who would not bring us to shame, but who would embrace us in our humiliation, who would cleanse us from our sin, and who would give us eternal life. And yet, even though we've been forgiven, and we have this sure hope and joy in Christ, we know this. This doesn't mean that there's no longer a place for lament in our lives. We still live between the already of our salvation and the not yet of the total restoration of all things. And so that means that we still experience pain. We still experience grief. We still experience sorrow, right? Loved ones die unexpectedly. 
Spouses give up and just walk out. Children rebel and lash out. Friends betray us. Jobs, we lose our jobs. Enemies scorn and, and despise and mock us. People slander us. They shout at us. Our bodies grow weak and frail and diseased. Our, our strength and our courage melts like wax. It's replaced with fear and doubt and exhaustion as we lay in the dust of physical death. We grow tired. And on top of all that, we feel the heavy burden of temptation and the self-condemning guilt and frustration of giving into it. But because we have Christ, because we have Christ, we don't have to suppress the grief that we feel in the midst of those things. We don't have to try to find strength within ourselves to overcome. We don't have to feel ashamed when we feel sorrow. We don't have to say, I'm sorry for crying. We don't have to ignore it. We shouldn't ignore it. And we shouldn't try to sprint through it. We should lament it. Because Christ has shown us that it's not an obstacle. Lament is not an obstacle to our joy. It's an avenue to it. He's given us lament as a gift because he knows and he cares and he hears and he answers. Because Jesus is our sympathetic savior, we should unashamedly express our lament to him individually and together as a church. And we should use it to lead us to joy in him as the God who knows our pain and has done something about it. So lament. Lament with great comfort because Christ sympathizes. And lament with great confidence because Christ saves. Cry out to God in your pain and call on him to bring relief and rescue. He will not remain silent. Maybe for a time. But he will not abandon you. Because he's already answered you. Look to the cross. Look to the grave. Look to the heavens where Christ is now seated. Risen, ruling, reigning. God's answer was his own son, Jesus. The lamenter of lamenters. And the savior of lamenters. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your grace shown to us in its fullest at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he was not some robot who came and did a thing. But he took on flesh to sympathize with us in our weakness, to experience our sorrows, our joys, our pain to give us hope and freedom. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to lament the way our Savior did and that you would use that to deepen our sense of joy in him. We thank you that we can look to the cross, yes, with sorrow, but ultimately with hope because Christ has made the way.
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.